Amen. And that really is the message that we find recorded in Acts chapter 13. As you would turn with me to the Word of God in Acts chapter 13, we'll begin in verse 26. How many of you like to collect something? Uh, Ever since I've been a kid, uh, my brothers and I have collected knives. When we traveled in evangelism, we started a collection of Starbucks mugs. You could get these mugs that would have the city and then it would have different things like the elevation and the population and different interesting facts. And so we began to collect those. And so then when I would fly to a meeting and Chris would be back at the trailer or back at our house in Star, um, I would look for um, a Starbucks mug from that city or that area. Sometimes it's just a state. Um, and, uh, and try to bring back a Starbucks mug. And so we have a collection. We've had friends then that have found out about that that uh, have brought us mugs from different places in the world. And so that's one of the things that we enjoy collecting. Some people collect stamps. Some people collect rare coins. One of my nephews um, enjoys collecting rare coins. Some people collect historical documents. Uh, for instance, Washington, uh, President Washington, George Washington, uh, and his first presidential Thanksgiving proclamation in uh, 1789 wrote, "The people of the United States uh, have set us. We have set aside a day of public Thanksgiving to be held on Thursday, the 26th of November, 1789. That actual original document upon which he wrote out his speech actually sold at private auction." They were asking $8.4 million at this private auction. The owner wanted to remain anonymous and the amount, but the starting price was $8.4 million, and they got at least that for that one document. It is a, a, a written by our first president, one of his first speeches that, uh, public speeches that he gave, and so it was of great value. There's much that we can learn. Well, here we have before us the Word of God, and we have a document that records for us in Acts chapter 13, the Apostle Paul's first recorded message. Certainly, this wasn't the first message that he ever preached, but this is the first message that is recorded in the Scriptures for us. And just like these important historical documents that people collect, they collect so they can get more of an understanding of the mindset or the message of whatever that speech was. And because there is such uh, historical significance attached to it, it is of great interest and value. So this message we see this morning, there's great interest and value in it, not only because it was the Apostle Paul's first recorded message, but because this is the message of the gospel that is preached And so we want to look as we continue the second part. We've already looked at the first part of the message. Now today we look at the second part of this message. And we're going to go all the way through to verse 41. So verses 26 to 41 where we come to an invitation that Paul would have given as he's preaching. And it's recorded for us in scripture. But look with me if you would in Acts chapter 13 beginning in in verse 26. Men and brethren... Those are the children of the stock of Abraham and whosoever among you feareth God to you is the word of this salvation sent. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about verses 16 to 25, the first half of this message. So since it's been a couple of weeks since we've been studying this, let me review for you. Um, Paul begins by tracing in this first part of the message, Israel, God working through Israel's history in sovereign preparation for the coming of Messiah. 
Paul then identifies Jesus Christ as the one who fulfills God's promises of Messiah. He also identifies Jesus as David's descendant, which again comes up later in the message. We'll see that today. And as was foretold uh, in the Old Testament, his prophecy concerning Messiah. And Paul uh, reminds them that John the Baptist uh, was the forerunner of Christ. And, uh, that, and that John the Baptist identified Jesus as Messiah. And so now he again specifically addresses this group of people to whom he's preaching in the synagogue, Jews, those who were um, probably more what we consider Hellenistic uh, Jews, and then those who were the God-fearers, that is Gentiles, who were not full-fledged, you know, they were not full-fledged yet converts to Judaism, proselytes sometimes called, but they were God-fearers who were learning more and they were believing instead of in polytheism and many false gods, they had come to acknowledge the one true God and they were learning. So this is whom Paul addressed and he again gets their attention by personally addressing them and it's because he is getting now down to this vital tree, he's distilling the first part of the message, expanding on it and distilling it in the second part and then bringing it to a point of decision as he gives this warning and invitation. He tells them in verses 27 to 29, first of all, that Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled God's plan. Look at verse 27. The Bible says, For they that dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, yet the voices of the prophets which are read uh, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day, they have fulfilled them in condemning him. Verse 28. And though they found no cause of death in him, remember Pilate said that, I find in him no cause at all, yet desired they, Pilate, that he should be slain. And when they, look at this, when they had fulfilled all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a sepulcher. Jesus' crucifixion fulfilled God's plan. The Jews at Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin crucified him because they did not recognize Jesus as their Messiah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, Paul addresses this here to the Corinthian believers. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even hidden wisdom, which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, the Jews had rejected Jesus as Messiah because they failed to believe the Old Testament prophets. They would choose which prophecies sounded best to them or already agreed with their mindset and rejected clear statements of the inspired prophets in, in other prophecies concerning Messiah. So Jesus, their participation in Jesus' crucifixion actually fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. In Isaiah 53, verses 3 and 4, the Bible declares that he, speaking of Messiah, he is despised and rejected of men. The Jews, by and large, in Jerusalem and Judea, rejected Jesus as Messiah. They challenged him, even at the cross, if thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. They would not believe. They would not believe even though there were the miracles and though many believed because they saw the power of Messiah and they saw the love of Messiah and they saw him fulfill that. Many believed, yet there were many more in the whole, the, the Sanhedrin and many of the Jews, especially the mob that called out for his crucifixion in Jerusalem, failed to believe. 
And then this, they fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 53 because they rejected him. Isaiah goes on to say he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. These Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah. They challenged him, believing that this Jesus was an imposter. And they failed to understand. Now, we under, I believe that there were some who, after Christ's death and resurrection and through the ministry of the apostles, came to trust Christ as their Savior. Even at the day of Pentecost, which happened at Jerusalem, 3,000 men were saved on that one day and were baptized, becoming disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of them could have been the very ones who called out for his crucifixion. What mercy of our God. Their demand to have Jesus crucified did not thwart God's plan, but fulfilled it. Because you cannot thwart the plans and the designs of a sovereign God. Why does Paul mention that they took Jesus down from the cross, calling it a tree? Well, there's great significance in this gospel message, especially because remember his audience was to the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles who were learning of the God of the Old Testament. But remember that they had not as a whole yet believed on Jesus Christ. And so Paul is warning his Jewish brethren in the synagogue in Antioch and these, God, or, and these God-fearing uh, men, these God-fearing Jews, not to reject Messiah as their brethren in Jerusalem had. Because Jesus crucifixion was part of God's plan and even those who rejected him and called out for his crucifixion were part of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy but Paul mentions that Jesus was taken down from the tree and he's very specific in referring to the cross as a tree because in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 22 and 23 the Bible says and if a man have committed a sin worthy of death and be put to death and thou hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. And that was a stumbling block for many of the Jews. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul addresses this in verses 10 to 14. He says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. The Old Testament Jews thought that they could, and especially the Bible says of the Pharisees, that they went about to establish their own righteousness by keeping the law. But what's the problem? There is none righteous, no, not one. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so all are under the curse, even those who tried to keep and observe the law to, to establish their own righteousness are cursed under that same law because that law proves them to be guilty sinners condemned to eternal death. And Paul writes this and says, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things that are written in the book of this law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith and the law is not of faith 
But the man that doeth them shall live in them. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, the very first part in Deuteronomy was overlooked for as many, in Deuteronomy, where it says, if a man have committed a sin worthy of death. Did Jesus commit a sin worthy of death? No, the Bible says of Jesus who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. The Bible says of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. Even Pilate said, I find no fault in him at all. So when Jesus hung on the cross and was and took upon us the curse of sin on our in our place, it is not because he had sinned and was cursed according to the law. Jesus did not violate the law, but he fulfilled the law perfectly. So that as the perfect God and man, Jesus Christ. He could in our place for our sins take upon him the curse of the law, the condemnation of the law, the sentence of death. And he willingly sacrificed himself in our place for our sins. And he paid the price for our forgiveness and justification with his blood. And he died and was buried and he rose again. He became a curse for us. He who knew no sin. Why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 declares that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And Paul is warning the Jews as he's preaching and saying, Jesus Christ suffered the curse for us on the cross and was taken down from the cross, having finished and fulfilled the plan of redemption, that eternal plan in Christ's crucifixion was the plan of God in love for us. But second of all, Jesus' resurrection fulfilled God's plan. Look at verses 30 to 37. The Bible says in verse 30, But God raised him from the dead, and he was seen many days of them which came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses unto the people. And we declare unto you glad tidings, how that the promise which was made unto the fathers, God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he raised up Jesus again. Now he's going to say, and here is prophecy in the Old Testament concerning Messiah fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And we ourselves are witnesses. We have seen Jesus, the resurrected Son of God. And here are some of the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. As it is written, he says, and he even cites it in the second Psalm. Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. And it's concerning him that raised him up from the dead. Now no more to return corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Does that sound familiar? We read that in Isaiah 55 this morning as part of our scripture reading. I will give you the sure mercies of David. But then, then Paul's going to be clear. Hey, listen, it's not David. That is the fulfillment of these promises. 
it is through David. It is his descendant. Remember, he already in the first part, verses 16 to 25, showed that Jesus Christ is the son of David, a title for Messiah. And now, he's, and now he is citing these psalms and different prophecies, Isaiah 55, of Christ. God declared Christ to be the Son of God by raising him from the dead. That's what we see in verse 30. The eyewitnesses, the apostles who had been with Jesus Christ from the very beginning throughout the years of his public ministry testified to his resurrection, bearing witness, he is the Son of God and the Savior. Look at this in verse 35. Wherefore he had saith also in another psalm, thou shalt not suffer thy one, a holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was laid unto his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised again saw no corruption. So he's saying again, this is that fulfillment of that Davidic promise that through David's lineage, there would be one, the King of kings and Lord of lords that would sit on that eternal throne forever. That the son of David is the Messiah that would not only give Israel someday political freedom, but, in, but much greater, of, of infinite more importance, salvation, freedom from sin, eternal life. And that is what is the important thing in prophecy that Israel, by and large, ignored. But now Paul is proclaiming to them. The Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus' resurrection verified that his crucifixion, crucifixion and resurrection is part of God's plan. Look back in verse 33. I want you to see this word. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children. That word fulfilled means completely Fulfilled God's promise to Abraham and to the Jews was completely fulfilled by the entirety of Jesus Christ, including his death and resurrection. He is the living son of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of David, the risen savior. Now, why this emphasis on the Messiah not seeing corruption? Because Jesus is alive forevermore. You remember the, the Shunammite woman, right? The Shunammite woman in the Old Testament had a son. And what happened to that son one day? He died. And God, through the prophet, raised him back to life. What happened to Lazarus in John chapter 11? Jesus said plainly to the disciples, Lazarus is dead. What did Jesus do? He went before the tomb and they rolled away the stone. And Jesus said to Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus was raised, Lazarus was raised from the dead. There was a little 12-year-old girl who had died. And Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and they went into that inner room with her parents. And Jesus said to that little girl, I say unto you, arise. And he took her by the hand and he resurrected her from the dead. But every time somebody was brought back to life in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament scriptures, eventually what happened to those people? They died, did they not? And their body still corrupted? Yes. But you know what? When Jesus rose from the dead, he is arisen with an eternal glorified body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 51, 
Paul writes with great excitement and joy and says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. What's that mean? Well, that word firstborn comes from the Greek where we get the English word prototype. It means the first of a kind. And see, Jesus resurrected from the dead with a glorified eternal body so that we can also rejoice as the scriptures tell us that we shall see him as he is because we shall be like him. We too shall have a glorified body. 1 Corinthians 15 promises it. All through this passage, Paul's been talking to the Corinthians and saying, listen, there are two different, there, there, this, this is a totally different body. Yes, it'll be a physical body, but it'll be, it'll be substantially, qualitatively different than the physical bodies we have now. These bodies are mortal and corruptible, but the body that we will have when we, are, when we have eternal life, when our bodies are raised from the grave or Christ comes back in the rapture. That's what Paul's talking about there when he says we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He's talking about the rapture foretold that he also reveals... Another mystery of God that he, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, reveals in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He talks about the, the people in, in, in Thessalonica were wondering, well, what, if, what, what happens to the Christians who die? You see, even back then, these new believers knew Jesus was going to return again. Jesus had promised his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, when, when Jesus ascended to heaven and the apostles are, are standing there watching Jesus ascend up into heaven, the angels say, you men of Galilee, why stand you gazing in the heaven? This same Jesus which is taken from you shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go. And they expected Jesus' return within their time. And so the Thessalonians were expecting Jesus' return. And some of their Christian brothers and sisters had died. And it's like, what happens to them? And, and Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ is going to come back in the clouds. And we are going to hear the shout of the archangel and the trump of God. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. So those who have died in Christ will be resurrected with a glorified body. Those of us, if Christ comes back today, wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't it be great to be driving home or driving to the restaurant from church and all of a sudden, the next instance, we are with Jesus. Wouldn't that be incredible? And in that instant, in the twinkling of an eye, this corruptible mortal body puts on an incorruptible immortal body like the body of my Savior. And that is the wonderful truth that Paul is preaching here. Is listen, the resurrection of Jesus Christ confirms God's eternal plan. And he's going to get into the invitation now and say, listen, this provides for you an invitation, but also a warning. Look, if you would, with me, beginning in verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, Jesus, is preached unto you 
forgiveness of sin and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest there come unto you which is spoken in the prophets, Behold ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I will work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. Here's the invitation. Believe on Jesus, be forgiven of your sins, and be declared righteous, be justified. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he, God the Father, hath made him, Christ the Son, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me ask you a question. I'm going to preface it by telling you this is a trick question. Is it enough for a man if Jesus forgives his sin? Is that enough for him to spend eternity with God? You see, if God forgives me of my sin, now I'm what? I might say neutral. I've been forgiven, but I'm, I'm neutral. But when I am justified, when I am made righteous, when I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ, I am fit for heaven. So when God saves me, and this is not like stages of salvation. This happens all at once. It's just like you say, well, you know, when, when, which comes first to, for, to be saved? Repent or believe? The Bible says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Acts 16, 31. Yet Jesus said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. So which comes first, repentance or faith? And the answer is yes. Just like, well, when I'm saved, I'm forgetting my sin, but then when am I justified? No, 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 no. It's Yes. It happens at once. I repent and believe. It's all together. It happens at the same time. I recognize that I am a sinner. I cannot establish my own righteousness by trying to be a good person, by developing my own philosophy or system of what I think makes up a good moral person. And somehow God's going to accept that and I can work myself to heaven or make myself more righteous and somehow clean up my act and become acceptable before God. I have to repent of that mindset. I've got to turn my back on that and say, there is nothing that I can do of my own efforts to cleanse myself from sin and, e and earn eternal life. And I turn from that and I understand and believe Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He shed his blood. He died in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, this is the plan of God before the worlds were created. Because God is just and must punish sin, but God is love and delights in forgiving sinners and giving them eternal life because we were created for his pleasure and glory and he desires to spend all of eternity with us. And I repent of this attitude that I can somehow earn eternal life or that I'm a good enough person to get to heaven on my own. And I realize that Jesus died on the cross to cleanse me from my sin. My sin is not harmless fun. My sin is not no big deal. It is a crime. It is a capital offense against a holy God that earns me eternal death in the lake of fire forever. And I realize that Jesus is God who died and shed his blood, was buried and rose again. It's not just a detached fact 
of ancient history. It is a personal reality that Jesus, the living Son of God, died and rose again for me and loves me and wants to give me everlasting life. And if I will but believe on him, I will be forgiven of my sins and I will be justified. I will be declared and made righteous, completely righteous in my standing before God so that I can have eternal life. And that's the invitation that Paul is giving to the Jews and to the God-fearers, men and brethren, believe on Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and be made righteous in him. Because by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in God's sight. But there is also a warning. Look again in verse 41. Behold, this is a prophecy. It says, don't let don't fulfill this prophecy. Behold, ye despisers and wonder and perish. For I will work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. If you reject Jesus as your Savior, you will eternally perish. Paul here quotes Habakkuk 1.5, where the prophet is saying to Israel at a time when they were prospering and thinking they were untouchable, I am going to use Gentile unbelievers as instruments of my judgment on you, Israel, for your sin and rebellion against me. And they thought, God wouldn't do that. We're his chosen people. No, we're not that bad. I mean, we're, we're pretty good compared to all the other people around us. Oh, yeah, we don't keep all God's laws, but, you know... And that was kind of their attitude. And Habakkuk is saying, hey, listen, you better repent of that attitude. Because God's going to do something in your days. And I know you don't believe it now and you don't think it's possible now, but it is going to happen. And he's giving that same kind of warning now. And he's saying, listen, don't be like the forefathers who said, oh, that judgment's never going to happen. We're somehow going to be an exception to God's law. But instead, acknowledge that this is inescapable truth. Do not perish in unbelief. And those of us who are saved, what is the invitation to us who have already believed? Two things. First is this. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. A preacher a long time ago who is an evangelist and a pastor and a great influence in my life. He once told me, he said, Todd, you know what? The greatest evangelistic and revival preaching you can ever do, the greatest thing to stir the hearts of God's people is to preach the gospel. You know, Jesus said to one of the churches, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. He didn't say lose. He said left. And we, through selfish, willful choices, can walk away from being in fellowship with our Savior. And we can begin to take for granted that we are saved. You know, we live in a culture around us that can be described as, often can be described as being entitled or having an entitlement mentality. And though with our lips we would say, I know that I don't deserve God's forgiveness and eternal life, there's almost a, an attitude of entitlement in that we kind of take for granted our salvation. And all that that means. And let me encourage you today, the one who loved you and gave everything for you and sacrificed his 
shed blood on the cross and died in your place and suffered unspeakable agony for you and rose again from the dead has redeemed your soul for all eternity, but he has purchased your life. Carmen was singing this morning, I'm not my own. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul's preaching that to the Corinthians. And he's like, no, you're not, that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and ye are not your own. For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. This morning, in a moment, when we have our invitation, it would be good for those of us who are saved to first of all rejoice in our salvation, to thank God, and to humbly acknowledge that we do not deserve it. But we are so grateful for God's work in our life and for the wonderful confidence and assurance we have that we have eternal life. We've been forgiven all our sin. We have been declared righteous before God, and we rejoice in that. But then right next to that, let us also then commit to the Lord, because we love him, that we'll do anything that he asks, anything he demands of us in his word, that we will joyfully do it out of worshipful hearts of gratitude, acknowledging we are not our own. And if you have not trusted Christ, repent and believe on Jesus Christ today. Shall we bow our heads? In a moment, our pianist will play a hymn of invitation. We'll remain seated with our heads bowed while she plays. You've heard the invitation, but let me explain for those of you that may have not have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ yet. To those of you this morning that do not have the absolute joyful, absolute confidence to know that your sin is forgiven, that you have the righteousness of Christ and your eternity is settled because God's given you eternal life because of your faith in his son. Let me encourage you just to pray something like this. God, would you make Christ real to me? Lord, would you clear away any confusion from my heart and mind so that I can understand your truth, so that I can accept your gift of salvation? For those of us who are born again, let's thank God for our salvation. Let's dedicate our lives to him. Let's make much of him. Let's declare him to others. Let's proclaim the gospel to those around us as God would give us opportunity. I will pray and then we'll begin our hymn of invitation. Please take this time to meditate on the truth and commune with God. Our Father, we do not come before you lightly or carelessly. It can become a very rote thing for us to thank you for our salvation. But we want to, with hearts of deepest gratitude and awe, humbly acknowledge that we deserve right now to be burning in the lake of fire. To realize that our, our sin is vile and gross. And it is an offense to you, a holy God. And what mercy that you, being a just and holy God, would give your son as the sacrifice to be under the curse of the law for us. We who are also under the curse because of our sin and he did no sin and he died on the cross in our place and took that upon himself so that we could be forgiven and we could have his righteousness and we could spend eternity with you. 
may we be in deep awe. And if we have been living careless lives that do not show that gratitude or that acknowledge the truth that we are not our own, we have been bought with the precious blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then, Lord, would you transform us so our lives would reflect that. And may we live joyful lives for our eternity is settled. And for those that have not yet repented of their sin and put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that Satan is the God of this world who would blind the minds of those who have not yet believed. I pray, Lord, that you would pull away, tear away those spiritual blindfolds, shine the truth and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ into their understanding, that they may see the beautiful simplicity of the gospel and with childlike faith respond to the gospel invitation to repent and to believe. May this be the day of their salvation. Our heads are bound. Our pianist is beginning to play our invitation. Mm-hmm.